Habakkuk. We are in Habakkuk chapter 3. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, that's page number 935. We are on final approach in the book of Habakkuk. We're in chapter 3. Lord willing, in the next three messages, we will land this plane. We'll see. Chapter 1 began with the prophet expressing his frustration. I feel like we need to have a little bit of a review since it's been about a month since we've been in Habakkuk. Chapter 1 began with, uh, with Habakkuk expressing his frustration. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? He complains in chapter 1, verse 3. Destruction and violence are before me. He sees strife and contention. He says the law is paralyzed. The law not being the law of the land like we would think of. Uh, the law being God's law, which was the law of the land. Seems to not be working not being able to do what it needs to do. So he concludes that justice never goes forth. and The wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. That's verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. God responded in a way that was shocking to the prophet. He says that he is doing something. And that's not the part that's shocking. What's shocking is the what he's doing. He's raising up an evil empire in order to bring about his will. He's actively raising up the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians. I keep using those two words interchangeably because it's good for us to remember. Because if you read other books of the Bible that will only use the word Babylon, uh, it might be hard to make the connection that this is the same group of people. It is the same group of people. In fact, in our Sunday school class, we are in the book of Daniel, and Daniel is in captivity in Babylon, as was foretold in Habakkuk. So trying to make sure that my students keep that connection, that we're talking about the same events. God is raising up an evil, vicious, fierce nation, one who invades and takes whatever land they want, And God says, this is going to happen to you, my people. This too should give us pause. God may indeed be bringing hardship into our lives so that we might turn back to him. So that we might humbly submit to his will. We actually looked at this concept in Luke chapter 13 just a couple weeks ago. In Habakkuk chapter 2, we see a contrast of the evil ways of the Chaldeans with the way of God's people. God's people must walk by faith. That's chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by his faith. And chapter 2 concluded with five woes pronounced against the invading enemy for their evil. So yes, they are evil. God is going to bring about corrective discipline on his people by means of a sinful nation. And then he's going to punish that nation for what they do to God's people. I love the irony. Some of you do too. But how can that be fair? We might wonder, how can God punish a people 
for doing something evil when God's the one who pushed them to do that evil thing? Well, first of all, the Chaldeans were already evil. Okay, so God wasn't making them do something out of their character. He's simply guiding them so that even in their sinful state, God is the one who will have his will be done. Chaldeans aren't having their will be done. God is. When we get to chapter 3, which is a psalm, a song, which means it's poetry, which makes it a little more difficult sometimes to understand what they're getting at. Today's passage is one of those. The bulk of this psalm is a theophany. I threw that word at you about a month ago. Anyone remember what it means? It's okay. A theophany is uh, describing and glorifying God using metaphors of the natural world. So in uh, chapter 3, verse 4, uh, you can read along with me. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Rays of light, brightness, flashing. Those are things that we can understand that help us to understand God, who isn't material, who is a spirit, who is all-powerful. There are all sorts of ways that we can talk about God that we actually struggle to understand. So a theophany is using things that we can understand to describe our God who is spirit and invisible and immaterial. In today's passage, the theophany continues, uh, not like the first part of the chapter describing or adoring God, but rather by showing how the natural world responds to God. Hence the title this morning, God of Nature. So we see in our passage how God is, uh, how, how nature is responding to God, and what's implied in our passage is that God's people should also respond to God. So read along with me our passage, Habakkuk chapter 3, we'll begin in verse 7. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. Let's pray. Father, help us to see you today. Help us to understand you better to understand your purpose and lord may it impact how we live so father please guide my thoughts and my words and help us to respond appropriately in jesus name amen we see in these verses various ways that the natural world responds to God, how the natural world fears God. We see distressing words such as affliction and tremble, indignation and writhing. Those are none fun words. That was terrible grammar, but you know what I'm saying. We see words of weapons. We see the horse and chariot. 
We see bow and arrow. We see spears. We see words of conflict, such as wrath and anger and the use of these weapons. So what we see pictured is a natural world that is submissive to God's plan. We see the natural world is not the target of God's anger because God's anger is targeted at whom? His people. Yet even though the the anger of God is not targeted at the natural world, the natural world responds in fear. Our big idea this morning is that we should obey God as well as the natural world does. Seems simple enough, doesn't it? We should obey God as well as the natural world does. In verse 7, we see that dwellings recognize God's work. Uh, Verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan. I keep wanting to call it Cushan, but then it sounds funny. There's no good way to say this where it doesn't sound funny. Uh, what do we need about, to know about the people of Cushan? It's that they, along with the people of Midian, live to the south, to the southeast, to the southwest, much like last week or last time we talked about how God uh, came from Mount Paran and from Teman and how those were areas from the south as he uh, rescued them the first time in the Exodus. Now, this is the same geographical er- area as what we looked at before. Uh, But what's interesting here is this is the first time and perhaps the only time in this theophany that we see the first person I mentioned. Habakkuk says, I saw. Now what's significant about that is uh, simply to remind us that Habakkuk is recording his vision, what he has seen of God, what God has revealed to him about what he is going to do. So what did the prophet see? He sees these peoples to the south. Who are these people? Uh, They are neither recorded in Scripture as friends of God nor foes of God. They're just there. Uh, Now, you might be thinking that's not possible. Either you're uh, a child of God and you're not his enemy or you are his enemy, and that's true. Uh, But for uh, for the purpose of, uh, of this psalm, Habakkuk is not making a point about who the people are. In fact, the people are immaterial. And here's what I mean. He doesn't say, I see the people of Cushan or the people of the Midians. What does he say? He says, I see the tents and the curtains, which is another way of saying tents. Why does he see the dwellings and not the people directly? Well, in these few verses that we're looking at today, God's purpose is to focus on the inanimate world. And you don't get much more inanimate than a tent or a piece of fabric that you have strung over some poles to keep the rain off you at night. If we were really to recognize God's reputation, our indifference would wane. What do we see happening to these tents? These tents respond. They are in affliction. That word affliction talks about pain of agony. 
we see the, the curtains are trembling. Why? Just because of the presence of God. Does the thought of God make you tremble? Ever? He should. Because he's holy and we are not. He's, he's all-powerful and we are we're made of dust. The Lord sees everything we do. He knows every thought that we think. And he is coming again. The tents recognize the God, that God is coming through and they tremble. Does the fact that God is coming back play into how we live? I think for many of us, sometimes is the best answer that we can really give. Sometimes knowing that the Lord is returning does impact how we live. Sometimes we prioritize God's purposes in our lives, but other times, all too often God is actively at work and we are looking the other way. We're indifferent. We should obey a God as well as a tent does. Verse 8, waters obey God's command. Was your wrath against the rivers? The, the answer is obviously no. God's not angry at the water. Was your angry, anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? God's power is unlimited. There's nothing that he cannot do. There are things that he will not do because they go against his character, but he is all-powerful. Verse 9 says, You strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. How much power does it take to fashion a river? It's an immense amount of power. Yet the waters obey. Waters obey the voice of the Lord. Lord, the sea stops right where God ordains it. The rivers carve out their territory exactly where God wants them to be. Because of this passage, I was thinking about rivers this week. Rivers really do slow down people. Now, we don't think of it that way because we have modern bridges everywhere. We can go wherever we want. But God's the one who's carved out rivers into the land. And what does that do? That divides the land. That makes it so people might have to work a lot harder to get from point A to point B. Perhaps rivers here are picturing God's guiding of mankind by preventing us going in a direction that we ought not go. So we have rivers, we have the sea, we have the bow that has been unpacked, it's ready for battle, and God, the supreme commander, has given the call for the battle to be unleashed. He calls for many arrows. Now, in the middle of verse 9, we have a selah. Very interesting placement. Uh, maybe you won't find it interesting. I did. Very rarely do we find in Scripture a selah in the middle of a verse. 
Uh, Sila, if you recall, in fact, if some of you didn't recall, maybe you looked at the note in your Bible, uh, Sila is simply a musical notation saying that there's going to be an interlude or a pause at this point in the song. While it's true that verse numbers were not part of the original text, when it comes to poetry, there's grammatical signs as to where, where we should think of verses starting and stopping. And so there, it's actually a little more provided for us in psalms like this. So it's interesting <clears throat> and unusual for a sila to be placed in the middle of a verse that would otherwise be logical as a whole without that pause in the middle. So why put a musical pause right here? Perhaps it's simply to get us to stop and ponder the text. God is going to battle, and and against whom is he going to battle? His people. That's worthy of a selah, isn't it? That God is unveiling his weapon getting ready to shoot off many arrows, as the psalm tells us. These verses reveal to us God's power and our powerlessness. War is on our minds more than than perhaps it normally is in other seasons of life. There are always wars, are there not? But there are not always wars with Russia. Now, why does that matter? Why does it matter that Russia's the one that's the aggressor in this conflict in Eastern Europe today? Well, just by the sheer size of the nation, the amount of money that Russia pours into its military, a war with Russia grabs our attention because of who they are, because of where they are, because of what they've done in the past. And rightfully so. It should grab our attention. Habakkuk is reminding us of the sheer size and power of God. If war with Russia makes nations tremble, how much more should God's people tremble at being at war with God? The Creator has sovereign right over His creation. He has the capacity and the authority to do whatever he wants with his people. Habakkuk gets it. Habakkuk understands God's sovereignty. Habakkuk understands who God is. Habakkuk understands that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. In fact, it's as good as done. Did you see that prophetic present tense of verse 8? when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation. It hasn't happened yet, but I said present, didn't I? I meant past. Prophetic past tense, as though it's already done, even though this is something that is yet to happen in the future. It is as sure as done, for God's chariot cannot be stopped. We should obey God as well as the natural world does. The waters... Follow God, do exactly what he wants. The seas do what God wants. It's not the natural world that God is chastising. If God's people had been submissive to God as the waters are, there would be no conflict. There would be no invasion forthcoming. 
Verse 10, we see that nature responds to God's presence. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The scene is pretty clear. At the sight of God, the mountains react as though in pain. Think of that, a mountain. I mean, that's, we want to think about an immovable, domineering object. Mountain fits that description. Yet at the sight of God, the mountains react. Uh, the, the word translated for us as writhing is the same word the Hebrews would use to describe a woman in childbirth. That pain, that motion and agony, that reaction that, that really is uncontrollable, it's unstoppable, there's no holding back, there's no Stopping. We see the waters are moving in a torrential fashion. The deep here uh, is, is equivalent to talking about the forces of the sea. The deep is loud. Can you see the stormy sea caused by the appearance of the Lord? See that storm that's happening here? It says that, that it's, uh, it's giving up its voice. That's the, the loudness of this terrible storm on the sea. It says it's the deep lifts up its hands. The highest part of the seas would be the crest of the waves. That's the, uh, the, the motion of the sea that is caused just by the appearance of the Lord. There's no mistaking that both the mountains and the seas, which, which represent very dangerous places for mankind. Uh, mountain climbing is a dangerous sport that people find fun. How many people have died in the sea? because of storms, very dangerous places for mankind, uh, yet they both react to God in ways that mankind should, but doesn't. God's purpose is being mirrored by, nat by nature. It should be mirrored by nations. At the thought of God coming to war with us, that should agitate us, that should cause us to be fearful, that should cause us to uh, be set into commotion, to do what it takes so that God isn't against us, that we would live humbly and holy in his presence. In Habakkuk's context, God's purpose was to purify Israel to get them to turn from their sin. As I rehearsed a little bit little earlier in, from chapter one, how uh, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah specifically, was living in an unjust way, in an ungodly way, in an evil way. God's desire is to turn them from their sin and back to God. Actually, God's purpose is more specific than that. We'll get to that in just a bit. Verse 11. Even the heavens submit to God's decree. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. So far we have seen tents. We've seen rivers and mountains. We've seen the sea all responding to the acts of God. Even the heavenly bodies, even the heavens respond 
to God. Joshua 10 comes to mind immediately, for most of us anyway, even if we don't realize it's Joshua 10. When we think of the sun and moon standing still, we remember the, the event when Joshua was leading the nation. They were at war, and they needed more time. Joshua chapter 10, beginning in verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of the heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. They were having victory, but Joshua recognized that if the sun went down, all bets were off. And so rather than just asking the Lord to defeat the enemy for them right there, which he could have done. In fact, if you go this afternoon, and not now, if you go this afternoon and read Joshua chapter 10, just prior to this, God does exactly that. He takes out the enemy with his own natural forces. Here Joshua calls on the Lord to make the sun stand still, and God does it. Why? Because even the celestial planets, the sun, moon, stars, all obey the voice of the Lord. Should not God's people as well? The point is that nature obeys God, but God's people haven't been. Does God actually say why he's taking Judah captive? Our assumption is that the reasons Habakkuk cries out in chapter 1 about the violence, about the lack of justice, about God's law not being powerful, not because the law isn't powerful, but because God's people are ignoring the law, that this is why uh, this exile is coming. And certainly these are adequate reasons for God to send the nation into exile. But God is actually more specific in other Old Testament passages as to why they are going to be removed from the land of Israel. Can I revert to Sunday school mode? Does anyone know why? You're not willing to raise your hand. Okay, never mind. There are a set of specific commands that the people of God chose to ignore, and that is specifically why God is taking them into exile. 2 Chronicles 36. I'm going to read 2 Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 17. This is looking back on this invasion after it has happened. So Habakkuk is looking forward to it. It's the prophecy of this coming invasion. 2 Chronicles is looking back on it as history. 2 Chronicles 36, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God. We're talking about the, the temple. All the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. Babylon. 
And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. That was 2 Chronicles 36, verse 21, and that is the key to understanding the why of Habakkuk. Israel did not keep the Sabbaths that God had appointed to Israel. To be clear, Habakkuk does not hint as, at this coming exile as being a fulfillment of Scripture that God's land would have its rest, that the nature, the land that God had provided for his people would have its rest. And it's possible that Habakkuk just didn't know. But we have more of the Scripture than Habakkuk had. can't help but think of Israel's abuse of the land that God had given them while reading through this passage that clearly shows that the land obeys God. Israel, the occupants of the land, were not obeying God. But the land, it submits to God's will. So what's happened? God has created a pattern of work and rest. He's given us this pattern, and it's ob some of it's very obvious. For instance, He's given us a pattern of day and night. We have to rest every night. If we don't, it turns out poorly for us, doesn't it? He's given us a weekly pattern. Now, this one's a little less obvious. Now, it's, it's obvious in Scripture, but it's a little less obvious in our experience. He gave us, from Genesis chapter 2, right after creation, he gave us the pattern of the Sabbath, where for six days you shall do your activities, your work, and the seventh day... You shall not do those activities, but instead you shall rest and worship. God tells us that this Sabbath, and, and this is the, the normal way we use the word Sabbath, deals with the seventh day of the week. The Sabbath was a gift to mankind. Because those who don't follow the Sabbath, what, the Sabbath principle, what do they do? They work seven days a week, and does that actually help them? No, it doesn't. We, at our own demise, refuse to take a day off for rest and worship. Again, it's a little less obvious because that's more of a step of faith. Uh, in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 2, verse 27, Jesus was responding to those who were talking about uh, the Sabbath, and he says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the point of the Sabbath was not to uh, follow a whole list of rules or to uh, suffer under the restrictions of God. No, it was a gift to mankind so that they could thrive. That's actually not the Sabbath that we're talking about in dealing with this exile. It wasn't the seventh day Sabbath. It was the Sabbath of years. The nation of Israel was given an additional pattern of work and rest. Three times a year they were to gather together as a nation to worship God at the various festivals. And in those weeks they were not to do their normal work. So it was a sort of a Sabbath. 
But Israel was not commanded Sabbaths just for themselves, these patterns of work and rest. They were also commanded a Sabbath for the land. Some of you know where I'm going because you've read Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and you've paid attention. But if you don't read those books, you might not pay attention. You might not get what's happening here. The nation of Israel was also commanded that every seventh year they were to not plant a crop. So you plant a crop in year one and you harvest it in year two, three, four, five, six. But in the seventh year, you do not plant a crop. You do not uh, prune the vineyards as it was worded because God was going to provide through the sixth year harvest enough to take you through the seventh year as well so that the land could have its rest. Is that a command that we are to follow? No, this was a command to the Israelites who lived in the nation, that, in the land that God had given them. Would you trust God if he had made that command to you? It's really easy to sit here and not have to worry about it because he didn't make that command to us. But could you trust God that, okay, I know that if I don't plant seeds, I'm not going to get a crop, and if I don't get a crop, I'm not going to have a harvest to either eat or sell. Would you trust God to not plant on that seventh year? Sometimes Israel did. But then they got out of that habit, and God kept track. In fact, uh, not only was there the every seventh year, do you remember the year of Jubilee? That's the 50th year. So after seven sevens, so you've gone seven years, and you've taken that sabbatical. You've gone another seven years, and you've taken that sabbatical. Seven, 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 seven is 49. After the 49th year, which is the Sabbath year, you were to take a second Sabbath year called the Jubilee. So two years in a row, you're not planting or harvesting anything. Could you do that? Whoo. Well, the people of Israel didn't. And so God said, I'm going to give the land its rest. And so for 70 years in a row, there was no harvesting, there was no planting in the land of Israel. God tells them in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 26, beginning in verse 33. Well, he starts in verse 17. I'll read to you from verse 33. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you. Uh, that's very poetic, saying there's going to be battles. And your land will be a desolation and your cities will be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. They had been duly warned that if they did not observe the sabbatical years or the year of Jubilee, that they would be in exile. They would be removed from the land that God had given them. The relationship of God and nature is clear. Nature obeys God. God takes care of nature. The relationship of God and man is also clear. Man does not obey. 
chapter 2, I think it's verse 4, the righteous shall live by their faith. It takes faith to live in obedience to God. The nation of Judah did not have that faith, and they are being warned that uh, this isn't a warning to correct them. This is a warning saying this is happening. This invasion is coming. And it's coming because they did not obey God in caring for the land as they were supposed to. They were supposed to give the land its rest every seventh year. We should really obey God as well as the natural world does. When God says it's going to hail, it's going to hail. Now when the weatherman says it, maybe not so much. We've gone through a couple weeks of that, haven't we? Where we think some really bad weather's coming and it's very hit and miss. For most of us, it's been miss. But that's the blessing of God. There's nothing stopping God from wiping out any one of us at any time, right? He has that sovereignty over his creation. So what should we do? What should we do with this information that, that nature responds to God and so we need to respond to God? What do we do with that? Well, that probably looks a little different for each one of us, doesn't it? Where we could pinpoint an area in our lives where we're not obeying God like we should. We're not responding to God as we should. Maybe it's a matter of sin that we need, to, we need to put away, we need to confess it, turn from it. Maybe it's a matter of service, actively working for God's purpose, whether it's uh, doing something actively in the congregation that, that people notice or whether it's things that people don't notice. That's still serving God. That encouraging one another, loving one another, serving one another. Maybe you need to work on worshiping God. You need to worship him daily. Spending time in his word. Spending time in prayer. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's nothing that I've mentioned. That's okay. Find, find one specific area in your life right now. Pick something small. And then commit that to God. Turn that over to him. Pray. That's how we commit, commit to God. Commit it to him. Commit it to someone else. Maybe it's your spouse or another family member. Maybe it's uh, another godly friend. It might be your pastor that you need to commit this to. But commit it to someone that will hold you accountable or whatever this changes that you need to make so that you will be more submissive to the Lord like nature is. I don't know what it is. You do. And let's grow together this week. Let's pray. Father, help us to live this week out in faith and obedience. Father, forgive us for the ways that we, uh, that we neglect you 
that we fail to see your purpose in our life. Forgive us for the, the, the many sins that we commit. Help us to turn from them. Forgive us for the times where we had opportunities to serve or to witness and we, we neglected to do so. Rather, this week, help us to not, not focus on our failures, but to, to recognize one and to grow in that area this week. Lord, you've given us your spirit, you've given us your word, and you've given us the church to help us so that we will live godly lives. We ask that you would help us to be the obedient, submissive, loving, joyful people of God that we should be. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's worship as we sing.